Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, people and culture strategist specializing in DEI and people analytics. I'm here with my friend, Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, welcome. Great to see you. I hope that you're doing well. I had the pleasure of seeing you this last week. That I was know, great. How well, we have so many. I have to share some pictures of us. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. There was yeah. there's some really great pictures of us, by the way. Really, really good. Really but, cool ones. Yeah, we were in Oregon. Yeah, yeah. And yes. I think it's Array as so well. that was the highlight, right, of our week. I think it's important. Uh, I think it's appropriate, right, to acknowledge that we're a little bit somber today. Our mood is somber. We're we're struggling to find ways to express some of our feelings about. Ongoing violence in the Middle East. That's something that took place as we were. I was going out there to Oregon, and and we uh, are, are still processing a lot of that. You know, I have deep ties to the Jewish community. I also have a number of Muslim friends, and so I I personally find myself sounding a lot like corporate communications and trying to uh, express some of the, you know my sentiments and and trying to split the things that I'm thinking and feeling right down. Uh, the middle sometimes and trying not to offend uh, folks that I, uh, you know, care about. And so I, mm-hmm. you know, I just feel a deep sense of sadness um, about the events of the last 10 days and, and a sense of horror about what's, what's coming. So I know that you're similarly just trying to get through this particular episode of Exclusive Collective. And so uh, we'll, we'll see what we can do to, to, to get through it together. Yeah. Um, it's a very sad week. It's been a sad few decades, but this week in particular, um, right? Like the thousands of innocent lives that have been killed, uh, both on the Israeli side and on the occupied Palestinian side. Of course, I'm thinking of my Jewish friends, my Palestinian friends, my Arab friends, my Muslim friends, because right now hearts are very heavy. I know I'm trying to make sense of all of this with like family and and friends. And of course there's social media and um, yeah, I've just been really at like a loss uh, for words this last week. It's, it's polarizing. It's devastating. I have, I, I think the, I think if there's anything that I can offer folks, it's one, make sure you're um, checking on your own mental health. And if that means you need to take a break from social media or the news, do that. It's a very privileged thing to be able to do. 
And then the other thing, I just encourage people to like, oftentimes, especially in kind of diversity, equity, inclusion work, as well as in, you know, humanitarian work, we often lose sight that there are several sides to stories. And I think the best thing we can do is listen to the oppressed side of the story, because oftentimes that's the side that's silenced. And so the more we can do that to really come humbly and listen to seek to understand what is happening around the globe, then um, I think that's something that, you know, that's something I can offer. And, and of course, this is one one major event that is happening or events that have happened throughout our, our lifetime. But also there, you know, there was 2000 people that have worked that died in Afghanistan because of an earthquake. Like there's so many things going on in the world, not to minimize one thing ver or compare one thing versus the other, but let's not lose sight of all of the lives that are being lost. So yeah, thank you for, for bringing that up. I think we did need to just address it and offer, um, you know, thoughts and prayers because we're really good at that as Americans. It's kind of our best thing. Is we, it's our we, best we, thing. we offer them. Yeah. Well, but if you are interested in learning a little bit more around the history, I would say American Muslim Project just re-released an episode that aired two years ago, an interview with a researcher on the Israeli-Palestine, um, uh, occupied Palestine, I hate using the word conflict, but conflict for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. um, and they are our our partners in um, production. So absolutely feel free to go ahead and download that episode. And there's so many other resources that we can make available as well. That's great. That's, that's great. Thank you for recommending that. Yeah. Well, let's get to the program here. So um, this week on Inclusive Collective, we'll be talking to Dr. Maya Hightower. Dr. Maya Hightower is the CEO and founder of Equality AI. And she'll talk about the intersection of healthcare and digital transformation. We'll also discuss SpaceX's alleged discriminatory pay lawsuit and the U.S. tampon tax later. And of course, we'll always end with our rants and raves. But first, Rob, we were in Portland together, Portland, Oregon. Yes. And you were here to talk about DEI data to public employees in the Northwest. Love to hear from you. What was something that you got a lot of questions on or something that the audience was struggling with that you feel like would be helpful to bring in this conversation. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I've i done this talk a couple of times, Nadia, and I think that one thing that consistently folks get bogged down around, right? There's a couple of slides on getting better data on your workforce or your customers or your constituents in terms of their demographics. And so the workforce in particular, if you want to get more sophisticated in using DEI data to develop and implement impactful solutions, you have to get, better, get a better understanding of the identity of your workforce, right? Oh, and sure. you have to usually, what that looks like is getting better data than what is contained in your HR systems. And so you have to go to the workforce and ask them for better information, right? And so in order to develop more targeted solutions, you need to have better information around things like sexual orientation, types of disabilities, caregiving responsibilities, things like that, things that you don't necessarily have ac access to unless you go talk to them. So I think that, you know, the thing that people get frustrated with, uh, the folks that are in tenants and, and in other audiences as well, is that they get, they've tried this in some way and have had 
you know, frighteningly low response rates, dreadfully low responses. And that's certainly, I don't think that's surprising, right? So because, so the thing that I always want to reiterate is that you have to build trust that people aren't going to tell you this much about themselves. And I think that we're obviously for very good reason, distrusting of, uh, of sharing a lot of those personal stories and personal information, right? And so you have to clearly communicate what you're trying to do with the information, why you're gathering it, tell stories of success from actually learning the information, make sure you make it very clear that this is something that you need to do in order to provide better services to your employees, constituents, and consumers. And you have to be okay with them not telling you and building that trust over time. And it's not something that you, you're going to ask one time and you're going to get all the information you need back and it's everything's going to be perfect. And so I think that that's something that people get really caught up in. And if you, it's something that you have to it's, it's more of a journey than something that you do one time and, and just walk away from. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for that coaching tip. Sure, sure. So let's go ahead and get to the deets, Nadia. Let's talk about a couple of other stories that we're, we're tracking. Sure. And I'm going to start with this interesting lawsuit filed against our friends at SpaceX. They're not really our friends, but I'm, like, I'm, sure, friends. I'm sure there's some nice folks there at SpaceX. But I'm sure. And, <laughs> so there was a woman that filed a class action suit saying that SpaceX had discriminated against women and underrepresented workers uh, and, and had paid them less than white and male colleagues. So the lawsuit alleges, and I think it's interesting, that women were offered a lot less. They started at a lower point on the pay scale. They were given lesser job titles. And so even though they were doing the same work, they were given a job title that, that somehow minimized their contribution and they were promoted at a lower rate than their white and male colleagues. And so yeah. I find this interesting because the reason that this person was able to put all of this together was because of the pay transparency laws. So they could see enough of the difference in as jobs were posted and they had to put different salary scales attached to those jobs. Uh, this yeah. person was able to put it together and then you know, get enough information in order to file that suit. And then from there, get their hands on enough data in order to paint a picture of these broader discriminatory practices. So would not have happened without the pay transparency law. So I think it's a, yeah. it's a nice roadmap for others. What, any, any thoughts on SpaceX? <laughs> not any, on SpaceX, but and, definitely on pay transparency and pay equity. Um, right. Like, so I think if what, what the lesson is here, if you don't, pay equitable, then you're subject to lawsuits. And, you know, the transparency piece is so critical. And some of these states that have implemented that are really, you know, opening the doors where employers really should consider doing pay equity analysis to understand what are the gaps. So call Rob and hire Rob and really try to understand where the inequities and imbalances are so that you can close on them. Because, not only is it the fair and right thing to do, an equitable thing to do, but it also will it will minimize or decrease the legality risk that you have. Right. Not that I'm a lawyer, but just um, in terms of lawsuits and um, unfair practices. So, uh, yeah, I mean, great, great on. I think the pay transparency piece is really critical to this. So that's cool. Yep, for sure. What do you got for us? All right. So last week, it was deemed that consumers in the U.S. paying state sales tax on menstrual products will be able to get those costs on some period care purchases reimbursed. So according to a CNBC article, period care brands like August, Cora, Lola, The Honeypot, just to name a few, 
will reimburse consumers for the tax paid on eligible items sold by eight participating brands. Sales tax is imposed on items such as tampons, pads, and menstrual cups in more than a dozen U.S. states. And just as a reminder, Rob, we had Jalen Rowe, CEO of Ferry, mm-hmm. in season three. She joined us on Inclusive Collective, where we talked about period inequity and the legislation across the U.S. She shared with us how period care products are essential, of course, and how, in her mind, are a basic need for you know women, girls, non-binary, non-binary folks across the globe. So it's uh, it, you know overall just sounds like this will really help advance period equity. Where's the where's the where the funds for this come from? Question I can't uh, answer, but I'm assuming. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Do you have an answer to that? <laughs> no, I think there's so that there there's that's one track is reimbursement, right? right? But it's also I think that that's a step that's not a step that's far enough, right? So I, mean, I think that legislatures should be looking at making sure that there is no sales tax imposed on, on on period products, right? Yeah. So from my understanding, it was these eight consumer these eight participating brands that would provide the the consumers with the tax with the, the reimbursement of the taxes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That are participating in those particular states, right? So it's like if you live in the in Massachusetts and you're not taxed on that, then you're obviously not eligible. Right. But if you live in a state. Yep. Right. So you like here of- in Utah, like for, for example, there is a, there is a tax on tampons and feminine care products. And so that's just, but my, my, my broader point is you shouldn't have to apply or these companies shouldn't necessarily have to come up with this type of solution that right. the legislature here should eliminate the sales tax, right? I mean, it's in, in, in all 50 states. And so it really shouldn't be an issue, but happy that the, that they're able to come together and do this. But it's not something that, that they should have to do. And hopefully at some point that it'll be eliminated in all 50 states. Yeah. And if we had it our way, then all of these products would be free <laughs> to all consumers. Like that's, and <laughs> that's, I didn't want to mention, that's the real thing is, it, yeah, it should go all the way, right? Yeah. Why, why, why can't we just go all the way? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for that, Nadia. We're going to take a quick break here on Inclusive Collective, and we'll come back with the CEO of Equality AI, Dr. Maya Hightower. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. 
If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. Our guest today is Dr. Maya Hightower. Dr. Hightower has an MD, MPH, and MBA, the CEO and founder of Quality AI and former executive vice president, chief digital transformation officer at the University of Chicago Medicine. Dr. Hightower is a leading voice in the intersection of healthcare and digital transformation. She's a champion for responsible AI, ensuring the future of AI is in healthcare is equitable and delivers quality care for all. At the heart of her mission is Quality AI, an early stage investor-backed healthcare tech startup. Quality AI empowers healthcare and trustworthy AI with an AI evaluation, monitoring, and risk management SaaS platform for the healthcare enterprise, providers, pharma, and payers. She's a four-time C-suite physician executive with 15 years of executive leadership spanning healthcare IT, medical affairs, and population health across four academic medical centers, clinically integrated networks, and accountable care organizations. Dr. Hightower received her BA at Cornell University, her MD and MPH from the University of Rochester School of Medicine, followed by residencies in internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of California, San Diego. She holds an MBA from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Finance and Commerce, as I like to call it. Dr. Maya Hightower, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us on Inclusive Collective. Thank you so much for having me. This is a really exciting a day and look forward to meeting uh, your audience and our conversation today. Thanks, Dr. Hightower. So good to have you join us this week. Thank you so much. I'll go ahead and get us started. What made you, just in general, what made you interested in exploring more of the intersection of healthcare and AI? I think specifically for me, just to better, I don't really know much about AI, <laughs> like just the basics. Damn. But what I'm curious about is like, what was the digital divide that that folks are observing and how does it impact healthcare? Yeah. So, you know, AI has been part of my journey from an executive leadership perspective for quite some time. I would say the earliest AI systems that I'd encountered as a physician executive or um, at the University of Iowa when I was the chief population health officer and chief medical information officer. And at that time, there were some you know, early algorithms that were embedded within our population health management platform. There were also faculty members that were experimenting, that were really researching, uh, building models that could predict risk, like risk of infection, risk of surgical site infection or recognize patterns. So one of our faculty members was working on a computer vision model that could uh, detect early incidences of diabetic retinopathy in ophthalmologic images. And so this was the ecosystem that I was part of at, at University of Iowa. Uh, and it was at that time in 2018, 2019, when the seminal article came out uh, by my, one of my colleagues, Ziad Obermeyer, who was at University of Chicago at the time and now is at UC Berkeley, that identified an algorithm that had been deployed nationally that had over been out in over 100 healthcare systems that, was, that he had found uh, to be racist. Essentially, it decreased mm. resources to black patients and increased them for, mm. for white patients while being equally sick. And that he identified as well, the good news is ways to mitigate that bias, right? Like 
it was a simple error by the the developer where they were using cost or spend how much one spends for healthcare as a proxy for risk and and it turns out systematically black populations spend less on healthcare while being equally sick and there's a lot of systemic factors that go into why uh, black patients in general spend less on healthcare but at the same time that had been programmed into the model and so at every level of say a uh, risk for a patient or a sickness for a patient pop- for the patient population black patients are systematically had to be more sick in order uh, to receive the same amount of resource or referral to case management in this particular case uh, so again the model was fixed they identified it they they did something called labeling experiments basically finding a better proxy label you know it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say maybe you shouldn't be assessing risk uh, by how much somebody spends in healthcare, maybe you should use mm, the problem right. with how many medical conditions they have. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Right. That might be a better proxy for for how sick someone is. It's how many medical conditions they have, uh, whether or not it's controlled. So that's actually what they ended up using: number of uh, medical illnesses and the number of um, and whether or not diabetes was under control as a better proxy to predict risk of complications or risk of illness. And then it was a better model. So at that time, I was the chief population health officer. We actually had that model within our health system. And I think at that time, I was like, oh, yeah, thank goodness they found it. It's not my problem. But over time, I increasingly became, you know, feeling a sense of accountability. Like, what's the role of the healthcare system? At the time, uh, you know, hindsight being 2020, I don't think healthcare systems, when we purchase a vendor solution had less awareness of what our role and responsibility are for the safety and and the accuracy of the models that are in our system. So that, of course, evolved over time. And I think, uh, of course, the events of 2020, COVID, um, the social justice movements really had provided me some space to think about, okay, uh, where are all the areas within healthcare IT or technology where we systematically program inequity? And algorithms was one of those high-risk areas where one could systematically program inequity or unfairness. There are other areas as well. When you think about, I often like to use the example of language. If you have a, say, a patient portal that's only available in English, You've systematically excluded access to those who do not speak English, right? right? So that's probably probably a starkest example of when healthcare IT or our technology can be can systematically exclude or perpetuate inequity. Yeah, yeah, Doctor Hightower, you talk about in something that I read recently that healthcare decision making algorithms can either be race based or I think traditionally have been race-based in, in many cases and argue that instead we should be race-aware. So for those of us that are not familiar with healthcare and health equity, can you just explain the differences and how it, and, and how it manifests in healthcare? Sure, absolutely. So historically, when we uh, saw in differences in, in outcome, maybe that's because somebody's more sick or uh, somebody has other risk factors, perhaps you have high cholesterol or high hypertension, diabetes, you know, and these often are factors that we put into our models 
to predict illness or predict progression of disease. And often what we would find within these large studies is that for African-American patient populations, there was a gap that wasn't explained by these risk factors. It wasn't explained by mm -hmm. hypertension. It wasn't explained by diabetes or even how well it was controlled. And so in order to fill the gap, they essentially put a race weight uh, to explain that gap. And so a good example mm -hmm. is with American Heart mm -hmm. Association has a, an algorithm called Get With the Guidelines for Heart Failure. And literally there mm -hmm. is in this rules-based algorithm, a factor is somebody, a question, is somebody white or non-white? And um, if you're non-white or black, then it would add a point or two to the scoring and it would yeah. literally affect, you know, whether or not someone met the cutoff for referral to cardiovascular care for, in this case, heart failure. And so that was yeah. an example where race was just blanketly used as a filler almost to make the algorithm fit. And that's right. called race-based medicine. What we now know is that you know, race is a complex socioeconomic social determinant that cannot be explained by simply a self-identified, I'm, say, black, you're white, you're Latino, or, you know, it can't be explained by just race. That underlying that is this complex social determinants of health that are actually the drivers behind what was once kind of unexplained other than race. And so race aware mm -hmm. is when you're now, instead of just blanket, you know, blindly saying, okay, race, black or white or Latino or whatever, or Asian, but now race aware is, okay, we understand that there may be disproportionate burden of socio uh, social determinants of health that are driving. What we really need to do is to focus on those social determinant of health factors um, and then Whoa. incorporate those into, say, our algorithm model or decision making. Uh, so that we are really addressing the root cause of the disparity, um, not just a label. So is that is that how we would use AI then to close the disparities in healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. And one way, one way to do one that. way when it comes to to AI and and algorithms, uh, there is incredible opportunity to develop models that are free of bias or de-bias as much as possible, um, and then to deploy them in a way that helps to close the equity gap or disparity gap. Uh, the challenge is that a lot of these methods aren't systematically used to ensure that the models that are developed are de-biased. And so you can, they, if you imagine, okay, we know that there's data, real world data is what develops is the fertility of the soil by which we develop models. Real world data has real world bias baked in. It reflects that real world bias. And so a model developed without adjusting for that real world bias has increased risk of perpetuating a bias that's already existing in the data set. And so that having that there's an added step that needs to be done systematically where one evaluates for bias and then mitigates it. And that's actually something that mathematically or within a statistical machine learning process can be done. And it's literally measuring for the fairness of the outcome of output of the model. If there's a gap, looking for where the bias is, 
can be as simple as a small sample size, like not enough diversity in your sample size. Okay. And then fixing it by either augmenting uh, the diversity of run sample size for your training data set. Um, or sometimes it's, you know, the, that selection of label, like what's the proxy outcome that you're coming, you're, you're, you're trying to target and then finding a better label. And that was the, the Obermeyer example. So the challenge is that we have to be systematic about identifying bias in our data sets and making sure that they don't perpetuate in our models. And that's mm. where there's been variable adoption of some of these techniques to do that. Mm. And, and that's where Equality AI, the studio, the, the, the product comes in. Am I, yes, am I right? Absolutely. So you recently launched the studio. Tell us what that is. Yeah, tell us more. Tell us. You know, I know you launched it recent, very recently. Yeah. You know, so how, how did, how's it going and, and, uh, and what are you excited about? It's, it's going great. So excited about the, the <laughs> so we did launch our, our MVP and um, of our Equality AI Studio. We have both an open source packet or a, an open source set of tools that are available for free that folks can explore the website. It's got a lot of tutorials on how to model for fairness how to measure mm -hmm. fairness, especially within a healthcare context, and then how to identify bias and mitigate bias. So the tutorials just say how to do it. And then the tools are actual methods that are embedded in the studio. So the studio itself is helps with data scientists within their machine learning development process to test their model, literally to evaluate their model. Does their model... Uh, perform equitably? So that's a very simple mm -hmm. question. Does it perform as well for all subpopulations as it should? And typically you'd have a mm -hmm. threshold of performance. Say you want to make sure that it, it's above, we have, we're often call it ROC above 0.8 you know, to show that there's enough accuracy to be a worthwhile model. Does it, is it above the threshold for every subpopulation? That's a very, and it doesn't have to be race-based. It could be gender. Does it work as well for men mm -hmm. and women, right? Does it work as right. well for young and old? Does it work for as well for rural or urban? Because there's a lot of factors that obviously that data scientists don't often know. And until you test mm -hmm. for bias, it, it's hard to know if it's there. And so the, that's the first step is just saying, does, it, does the model performance-wise work for each of the populations that I'm concerned about? And then the second is, okay, it may perform, it may be just as well at predicting your outcome. And is, if the intention is to distribute goods and services, say healthcare, is it equitable in distributing that, those resources? And so that would be the outcome, the output. There's an, another sort of fairness metric that you can measure is the output of the model equitable across subpopulations. Like, am I referring, if it's referring to cardiologists, am I referring equity? equitably uh, my patient population to cardiology or to a medication or a service equitably across subpopulations. Mm -hmm. And then if it's not, then there's what are called bias mitigation methods, which sometimes it's algorithms on top of algorithms, right? <laughs> but you can then mitigate that bias and say, okay, this is the outcome that I seek. And this is how what I, I, I want to move the you know, quality measures in a certain direction to be able to then mitigate the bias that was existing in the data set to, to produce that, that outcome. So that's what our, in a nutshell, the studio does. It, it evaluates for fairness, for bias, 
mit- you can mitigate against it and then make sure that your model itself is fair, but also uh, monitor for the outcome that you seek. So a model, um, an algorithm really is just an intermediate. It's a tool. What you really want is right. health outcomes. And so did you actually, right. did a health system move the needle for the health outcome that they seek? Did they provide better care for their patient? Sure. I like that you said in a nutshell. There was a lot there. <laughs> like in a nutshell, it does everything. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, so you know, that's a. It sounds like a fantastic resource um, for anyone in healthcare, specifically people working around data, trying to kind of close the inequities that are um, in the healthcare environment and system. I'm curious, like from your perspective, how receptive and open are medical professionals as well as those data scientists working in medicine in in how open and receptive are they to really like something like your product something like your um practice in terms of helping to mitigate the bias that's in these systems yeah so from a receptiveness um very um patients are receptive leaders are receptive you know it's it's and data scientists are very receptive because everyone, it's especially in the last year, there have been so many incidences of AI perpetuating bias, right? Like you mm. can't open up the yep. newspaper or you know, your 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 X feed and not see an example where some sort of <laughs> exactly or some sort of bias has has been identified. So there's a lot of awareness, and we all want to make sure that we're providing quality care for all of our patients, right? Universal. Uh, so that part has been is pretty easy, and I speak frequently on the topic. The challenge is whether or not a system is technically capable of, of utilizing our system. Uh, so it does require a certain amount of digital transformation. So it does require, you know, having made that investment in cloud infrastructure, that the training of one's staff, the training of your data scientists, and so. You know, not all health systems at this point in time are able to make use of our tools. Uh, many, some are, and they, are, they really are those leading edge health systems that have invested mm-hmm. in, in their digital transformation. But I am confident, and I think all, we are all co- confident that over time, those leaders will continue to lead, and then the middle of the pack will, will come along in the next five years, especially in order to, to leverage AI in general, uh, health systems will need to make this digital transformation. Uh, you know, we talk about all sorts of advances in large language models and chat GPT and, and all of that. And in order to take advantage of that, uh, you have to be at a certain level of digital maturity. Dr. Hightower, you mentioned that you could, anyone can just go to, is it equality? Equalityai.com. And in the upper right-hand corner, there's two links. One is to our studio itself. Uh, that's to the full-on, you know, very pretty studio. Um, and then there's another to our GitHub. And that has a whole slew of resources on fairness, on um, bias mitigation methods. It's a great just overall educational resource uh, to understand, you know, at a, at a very te- technical, but I think it's, it's also written at a, at a level that most lay folks c- would be able to understand. 
that's going to be our resource that we recommend this week. But I did just as we, just as our final question as we wrap up here. So again, you mentioned that algorithms, right? Like that's not changing algorithms or making better algorithms. That's not going to completely modify the entire healthcare system to what we, <laughs> what we need. If I give you one or two, one, one thing that you would change, what are some of the systemic changes that need to take place in order to create a more equitable healthcare system? Measurement. I think, ah. yeah, the first then, the first step of going beyond, you know, performative, saying you're going to do something is to measure. <laughs> to know where you to are. To know where right? you are. Yeah. So if you don't measure, well, it's really hard to, to act. And, and that is always the first step is to. You're speaking um, rough. I, I, love I, I, right? I, 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 I literally have tears running down the side of my cheek here. That is. Most brilliant per thing I've ever heard a person say. So I'm going to, we're, we're going to end with that. Thank you so much, Dr. Hightower. Thank you so much for joining us. And we wish you the best of success with the Equality AI Studio and Equality AI. And uh, we look forward to hearing more from you. And come back and see us uh, at some point. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. Good to have you. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back with for our calm reflections and raves and rants. Welcome back, folks. So we just finished chatting with Dr. Maya Hightower. Rob, she was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's pull up all the bi algorithmic bias, reusing AI, mitigating that bias. I love this aspect of, it sounds like, you know, she's focused on healthcare, but it sounds like you could use her product in, in the lab really in any type of data or AI kind of understanding of measurement or data that you're collecting. Is that fair? Would you say? I think so. And I'm excited to play around with the studio. Like she said, it's about thinking about fairness within data. And so there's a lot of educational resources there. I was thinking as we, you know, and again, I get, we get so many questions about what's going to happen with college admissions and in the business world, if affirmative action is phased out. And I was thinking about the way that she describes social determinants of health as being a better, more useful variable than race. Okay. And it's okay. Could there be social determinants of education, social determinants of occupational success that should be modeled and could be, and we could use some of her products to, to try to figure some of these things out. So I, I was really, really excited. I didn't want to get too nerdy in the conversation and uh but, like, but I, she's I you, like moving in care like, <laughs> I, was, I, was like <laughs> I was yeah I was, I was getting really fidgety yeah for yeah, sure yeah that's great no same i mean i i i actually when you asked that last question i thought she was going to respond by saying like access to healthcare. Mm -hmm. And I, I am really happy that she made me think about the measurement because, yeah, we don't currently know where we are. And so I appreciate you asking that question and then her response, because I did. I made an assumption that she was going to say just getting access to for health care to people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I really did get misty eyed when she I, I, I did have to take my glasses off and wipe tears away. So. Well, great. Well, we thank Dr. Hightower for joining us. Um, let's get to our, our rants and raves. Oh, that's and right. You go yeah. first. I'm ranting this week. All right. So we're going we're gonna to rant. All right. So, Nadi, we often praise our friends at Disney for some of their efforts to diversify characters and then their storytelling. We find it amusing 
that they are feuding with the one-time popular Republican governor of Florida, Ron DeSantos. Yeah, so we like that feud. I even know many companies send their DEI teams and leaders down to the Disney Institute for conferences there to because they're they're very forward thinking in some aspects. But I did get my email this past week that my subscription price to Disney Plus was going up; it had over doubled. Then over it was it was it was low, but it over doubled. And then I also saw that a the price of a a ticket to Disney World had gone up by an average of $15, bringing the average ticket price to near $200 per person. And I just heard per, per day. Yeah. Per day, yeah. Right? So yeah, exactly. So I just want to, just a little reminder that part of DEI is considering access to your products for the folks that want to enjoy them as well. And so at around $6,500 per family for the average cost of a trip to Disney World, that experience is out of the range for most families. And of course, that will make their customer base wealthier and whiter. And so just a little reminder that you have to pay attention to access. And I hope that they can think of some ways to make their products more accessible. Yeah, that's great. Good, good rant. Um, my rave this week, Catalan Carico was awarded, and I apologize if I'm enunciating that incorrectly, was awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine for her pioneering work on the mRNA technology underlying COVID-19 vaccines, which continue to save millions of lives across the globe. Really cool to see her join a small but mighty number of 23 other women who have won Nobel Prizes in the sciences. So really Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, well, that that's a wrap for this week. Just a reminder, folks, that if you're looking for DEI and workplace culture strategy, consulting, problem solving, or training, you can reach out to me at Nadia at nasconsultants.com and Rob at Consulting.com. Inclusive Collective is a production of Raphaelian Media and edited by Ari Mathay. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at resilient.com. You can find us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Be sure to follow us on LinkedIn so you can subscribe to our Inclusive Collective monthly newsletter. If you like what you heard, please, please, please subscribe and rate. Give us five stars um, is what we like <laughs> wherever you get your podcasts today. Thank you again to our guest, Dr. Maya Hightower. We will be back next week. Everyone, please take care of your mental health. Be well. Thanks, Tyler. I think you want it.